0: Before we get to today's episode of Perpetual Chess, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show. Ways to support Perpetual Chess include telling a friend about the show, subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. Better yet, leaving a positive review on that platform. But most of all, I want to thank the people who've supported me with the new Patreon page. If you haven't heard, it's patreon.com perpetualchess, and the suggested donation there is $2 a month. So I tried to keep it as affordable as possible for as many people as possible. The donations go to cover things like the production, the audio equipment, and the hosting for the show. So if you can't afford it, you definitely shouldn't donate. But if you can, it's really appreciated and it helps out a lot. And guess what? I think it's also going to make the show better. What we're going to do is people who donate to the show will get advance notice of the guests and they will have the chance to send in questions to the guests. So if you feel like there's some topic I don't cover enough or if you have some favorite player that you're waiting for them to come on, well, there's a good chance we're going to get them at some point. So now you can sit back and wait, and then when someone's coming on who interests you, you can pounce like a cheetah and get your questions in. I think this is going to make it a better show overall, more community-driven. I've always said I want this show to be by the people and for the people. Well, I think that this will help make that happen. So thanks again for all the support, and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, I'm here with uh, international master chess theoretician, renowned author, teacher, John Watson. It is my great honor to have you on. John, thanks for joining Perpetual Chess.
1: Well, thanks very much. I've been listening to your shows, and they're extremely professional, uh, more so than mine were in the old days, and uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. It's great for the chess world.
0: Oh, thanks. Well, of course, I feel like I'm standing on your shoulders, standing on the shoulders of a giant, <laughs> and uh, and as I told you in our email uh, – I feel like um, your knowledge of chess history and your connection with all the top players. I don't feel like I'm I'm on that level, but hopefully, uh, provide some entertainment for people while they're driving around or walking around and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's the advantage of a podcast—the driving around thing. I would, that was pointed out to me by somebody who listens to your broadcasts. Uh, whereas with my thing with ICC, which is you know still up in the archives if you guys are ICC members, but that that was um, uh, you know not something you could take with you. So. Um, unless you you know well I guess these days you could put it on your phone and do it but but at the time there wasn't anything like that
0: yeah there's probably some industrious chess fan out there that found a way to get it to their phone to listen to but for those who don't know um, I am Watson's old old show uh, where he interviewed chess players similar to this and they actually showed games it's available online if you have an ICC membership and he's still got a show going for ICC called Ask the master and John when is it broadcast?
1: It's on Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that's 3 p.m. because I'm in California. Uh, It's called Ask the Master. You can Google Ask the Master John Watson because it's on YouTube. And all the old shows are still up on YouTube. So they're archived for the last year and a half or so, or almost two years now, I guess. Um, so basically if you if you google it that 's the best it 's free to everybody It is an Icc sponsored show, but you don 't have to be a member of Icc and What there is is there 's a chat window so people can ask questions live and that 's a lot of fun. We got uh, sort of a regular crew it 's not huge, but i 'd really welcome everybody to come on. Uh, give it a try tuesdays at 6 p.m eastern standard time and if you can't make that you know we, the shows are archived you might want to listen in uh, a lot of, and uh, the other thing is you can send questions in advance i always announce that on the show so i'll just real quickly say there's a email Watson at chessclub.com that you can send to Watson at chessclub.com and you can send any kind of questions openings training tournaments favorite players send your games all that stuff
0: Okay, okay, and I'll be sure to put that email address in the show description, too. And just to reiterate, because I I, I have to confess, I, I'm a big fan of yours. I've read several of your books. Um, you know, obviously, as an American chess player of a certain age, you've been on my radar forever, and I've been a fan of yours forever. But somehow, I didn't know about this show, uh, and I only I, – <laughs> I, I, part, partially, I think it's because uh, Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, when you have uh, young kids, um, you're, not, you're not escaping to the computer too often. But, no. but I did get to check it out, and it's great. I mean, it's, it's basically like free lessons. So, uh, I mean, your your knowledge of openings in particular is just incredible, and I mean, it's very personable and enjoyable. So I would encourage people to watch it live, and if you can't watch it live, check out the archive. Um well, yeah, so, thanks. Sure. My, <laughs> my pleasure. So, uh, John – uh, we, you're you're following up Jesse Cry by a couple of weeks, who also had just played a chess tournament. And as I told him, I'm going to tell you because I know Isle of Man is probably it's probably receding from your uh, your 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 consciousness a little bit but I'm sure you've got a few moves that you wish you could still change and still pop up in your mind <laughs> stuff like that so, like ha- so how was the trip <laughs> uh,
1: I, I, it's funny about Jesse's interview I listened to that I unfortunately haven't gotten to listen to too many of your interviews they're all great um, but uh, I listened to Jesse's it's quite funny how much overlap we have he he did very badly at his last tournament and I did very badly and he has favorite TV shows that were similar to mine and,
0: nice. yeah. <laughs> and he,
1: uh, he had some things to say about about coming back to chess and uh, and in particular what he said about why he thought he did badly was interesting to me because two of the key factors well one of them is preparation I, I tend not to prepare my own things I tend to prepare my students things and then I realize I don't even have a really complete repertoire and I think that made a difference. Uh, Maybe more important with me, he made an interesting comment. He just said his brain doesn't work as fast. So it's not like I'm not having great ideas, making some good moves. I'm actually playing pretty originally, I think. And uh, that's kind of fun. I'm sort of proud of myself on one weird level, even though I've sunk in strength dramatically, because what's going on is I'm not handling the the time well. And I, I simply, you know, you get to some, or even calculating as well, generally, you get to some critical position. I just simply can't, can't do it quickly you know i can't make five or six critical decisions in a row without you know falling apart basically yeah so uh
0: yeah yeah i'm 40 and I, definitely at my age i i feel the same way uh you guys are, <laughs> you guys are stronger so, players than me but i mean i think that the change is the same no matter no matter what um yeah and uh generally i've it's funny though to hear you talk about uh not feeling prepared because obviously <laughs> you uh you know, we all can relate to the 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 impact that aging can have on your calculations. But when I watch your shows on ICC and the fact that you've written all these opening books, I still feel like your theoretical knowledge must at least uh, keep you in the game against these uh, these young monsters.
1: Well, I find out. Uh, by the way, I'm 65, just so people know what I'm talking about, or 66 now. Actually, I just turned 66, uh, so people can relate to why you know why I am slow, but. um yeah, I was gonna, it's it's actually kind of interesting. I think what I would have to do is what my friend Jim Tarjan has done to some extent is I'd have to really simplify my repertoire. I play I play almost all critical lines. I and I didn't realize it really until I started coming back and playing. Yeah, you know, I didn't play for a long time, and playing some of these tournaments that uh, they're much too. Um, they're much too double-edged, which means more calculations and more uh, maybe more surprises early on or more critical positions early on. I think I'd be better off playing uh, purely positional openings, maybe that simplified early a little bit. In, in terms of results, of course, it's more fun to play
0: right, yeah. the-
1: theoretical lines. I mean, I have more fun. I, in fact, I'm sort of addicted to some of these th- theoretical lines because, of course, I'm looking at them all the time. So, um, yeah, old, you
0: know, I, old man chess yeah. has been fine called it. <laughs>
1: There is an old man chess syndrome, I think, and, um, you know, it it's, it's probably makes a lot of sense, especially with the uh, – I know Jesse mentioned the uh, increase, you know, the speeded-up time controls. So, absolutely. I mean, they really are speeded up compared to our time. And I also find that I'm terrible at increments and delays. I'm, the increment, I don't understand. It's, it's a huge amount of time, these 30-second increments, but I find myself panicking on an increment. Yeah, and I'm –
0: I know that the delay is like supposedly more of like an American conception, but to me it seems more natural than an increment. I I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't like either one. (laughs) (laughs) I I tend to panic. I'm a little surprised, which means I still care about my results, I guess, or something. I always think I don't care that much, and I think I'm taking losses much better than I used to. I mean, I'm really, you know, sort of. I almost have fun with them, or something, but but at the same time, I'm it's deep down. I must still be very competitive because when I get in these uh, increment situations, I'm just like absolutely panic and in fear of you know blowing it and defeat and you know I, I haven't solved this problem at all yet. But uh,
0: yeah, but um, it's yeah. time management is a, is a constant struggle, increment or no increment. Um, <laughs> so how was? I mean, you, you've made allusions to not not being too too pleased with your. But would you want to give us, like, a bit of a blow-by-blow or just, like, the the sort of three-sentence summary of, like, what your take-home lessons are from uh, from this trip?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, the main thing for a a tournament like this, since I really just don't play enough – I think the last time was January or something – is that – is that they're fun. I mean, it's a great tournament. It's a wonderful tournament. And, you know, there's you plenty of room under the table and good lighting and, you know, you're not, you don't feel like you're in a room packed in like a sardine and, uh, uh, there's all these top players. You know, Isle of Man was maybe the strongest open in history, at least at the top because it had Carlson and Kramnik and Caruana and God knows who else, uh, a host of strong grandmasters. So, so I treated it to some extent as a, you know, I don't know, vacation's the wrong word, but, um, but you know for fun as a fan and uh that really helps so if you're planning to go to one of these international tournaments i think it's good to take that attitude to some extent that you know you're there to experience the tournament itself um and the place that you're going to so um as far as my play um i think i already mentioned what i think i did you know wrong what i would do differently um you, it's, one thing you have to be ready for is the lower players in these tournaments. Which, of course, I played a lot because I was doing badly and it's the Swiss system. Uh, tend to be awfully strong. They're people who've played for you know many, many years, uh, and, and they. Uh, I, I got a few cases of incredibly underrated players, and I know everybody always thinks who they, the people they're playing is underrated. But this was a case where, I mean, there was one case where a kid had lost 180 points in six months. He was just a kid, and he was going straight up the board into master, and he'd lost them because he was playing these. Uh, FIDE-rated tournaments to give people ratings in Sri Lanka. So he played like a ton of these tournaments, and of course, they, they was, these were experienced players, but they just didn't have ratings, so they were, you know, he could, even he as a talented kid couldn't maintain his rating against in that situation. And there are a few, actually several people like that that just had freakily, freakishly low ratings. So you have to be ready, yeah. <laughs> every game. It doesn't really matter what their rating is superficially. They're probably they're going to be pretty – in order to commit to a tournament like that, they're probably going to be pretty tough players. And they're players who play a lot. Yeah. But they Players who tend to play quite a bit. So.
0: Yeah, and the FIDE ratings in particular can – especially with younger players, they don't necessarily keep up with their progress because there's a there bit of go. random mm-hmm. element to which tournaments that kids play are FIDE rated and which aren't.
1: That's right. And they're probably about 100 points higher than USCF ratings just for the record if people don't know that. Anyway, that's I think that's the generally given figure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's. How I'm sorry, they're 100 points lower. Excuse me. So they're, they're. It's easy to underrate. If you're thinking in terms of USCF ratings, then you know you, you're playing someone that's um, better than that. If you're playing a 2200, it's the equivalent of playing a 2300 USCF rating. Right. I believe that's right. That's roughly right. Anyway.
0: Yeah, I would say 50 to 100 generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the rule of thumb I've used. So what was, uh, y- you mentioned that you generally, you enjoyed the sightseeing, you got to see the elite players up close, and I know you had some some old friends there, I'm sure. So what was your highlight away from the board?
1: Oh, yikes. <laughs> uh, well, I always enjoy talking to, uh, you know, other other players. It's funny, this time I'd say I talked less to the players I often talk to, maybe because they were so, professionally committed or something uh to, to the top players but i talked to a lot of old players that i hadn't seen in in 30 years that kind of thing um you know like i, I, I don't know if you know uh uh leon piaszewski for example uh <laughs> just he shows up at a lot of these tournaments i guess so it was fun i spent some time with him and um uh, some of the old English players that I used to talk to quite a bit, and I talked to people like Simon Williams. And I didn't really talk to the top players; I just sort of nodded at them. I usually talked to Nigel Short, some, and I don't think I we just passed a few words together. And Gawin Jones was interesting to talk to; I'd never met him. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I played him once, but I'd never talked to him. Uh, really fine person, you know. The personalities at the top of chess these days are so much so much better because I think the the um, financial burdens are less you know there's there's always uh first of all there's more money and more sponsorship and and they can teach yeah so so um i find that i think my generation and the one before it especially the one before it um there's just so much pressure that i think it tended to only the really neurotic types survived and they felt kind of cheated by their lives a lot of times so Especially the professionals felt like probably they could have done something else and uh i don't think that's true anymore you know i, f- I find the um The leading players, when I talk to them, uh, are, to my mind, much saner and, uh, I think, happier. I think more content with themselves. There isn't the insecurity that you got in the old days about being a chess player as being some sort of inferior enterprise.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I I definitely feel that way, too. I'm... I'm I feel proud that most of the, the top players, I feel, are good representatives for the game, but I hadn't made the direct connection between sort of uh, the fact that it's more monetized uh, and the fact that the, the the most active top players seem to be less eccentric than they used to be.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think uh, I, I, I think that's the key because, you know, why would people be different from generation to generation, especially ones with similar mentalities like chess players? So, yeah, uh,
0: And I've noticed generally, you know, I don't know if you have an opinion about this, but I feel like there are certain uh, personality traits that strongly correlate with liking chess. Like, I feel like disproportionate number of chess players are night owls. And... <laughs> And they're introverts more often than, like, I would say, you know, general section of the population. And do do you have any theories about, like, what it is about, like, the region of the brain that chess appeals to that makes makes it attract a certain type of person?
1: Well, you spend a lot of time alone uh, studying. And in a sense, you're alone at the board, too, aren't you? I mean, it's not exactly a social activity. Right. So, and of course… There's pretty obviously a correlation with sort of mathematical ability and various analytical ability. Probably music too, it seems like. So those things are pretty interior, right? Those appeal to people who really w- want to spend a lot of time with themselves thinking about problems. So it makes sense that they'd be more um, introverted generally. Um, I guess, I mean, especially the better ones, the top the top ones, because uh, th- those are sort of introverted. Actually, I think mathematicians tend to be very introverted.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, and e- even academics, which is obviously opens mm-hmm. up the window to a much uh, broader set of fields, but the amount of uh, study required to, you know, be like Jesse Cry and get a PhD um, is is you know at least in the same universe as what it takes to become a grandmaster.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I and I think that you could make a stereotypical divide, and, in general, of course, with numerous incredible number of exceptions between the humanities and the sciences. And philosophy, I think, leans a little towards the science in a way. I'm not sure. That's not literally true, but I think in terms of mentality, it does. I mean, I'm surprised how many chess players did some philosophy or how many philosophers I, I know who play chess. Um so, but but I mean, if you think about the the humanities in terms of social sciences and maybe even literature, uh, I think I think those people are a little tend to be more social for obvious reasons, because that's what the, where their interest is.
0: Right. Um, yeah. And speaking of philosophy, your your student and friend and uh, U.S. Uh, chess life uh, book reviewer John Hartman <laughs> mentioned uh, that um, you he when he met you, he told you that he had studied philosophy and you were just suddenly off to the races talking about philosophy. So I guess you have a bit of an interest, too.
1: Uh, Some. I I certainly haven't kept it up at all, but I sort of have the background. So I I met somebody on the plane the other day who was writing books about existentialism, and I happened to be reading a book about existentialism, too. So it was actually (laughs) actually a lot of fun. Uh, Yeah, I'm always amazed how much I remember because, you know, I had a stroke, and so I've forgotten massive parts of my life. But then there are these odd things, like I seem to remember all these details about philosophers that I read when I was really young. So it's, it's very, uh, very strange because I have huge, you know, huge gaps in other things. But
0: yeah, and so for I think most most listeners will will know the story of the sad story, but ha- with a happy ending of your having had a stroke. So um, could you? Uh, just quickly review like when it happened, and of course i'm I'm most interested in in the effect it had on your chess once once it happened, and you know you came to grips with it uh how did how was your chess game
1: yeah, let me think um well the first thing that happened is I really lost a lot of mental capabilities I had trouble speaking i couldn't. I remember I was there was a number I was supposed to call if I was in certain kinds of issues. And the number was written in large letters right in front of me. and I still couldn't keep it in my mind long enough to dial the, the phone, <laughs> to, to hit the buttons on the phone. That's how bad it was. I mean, I, I just couldn't retain any information. And, and my memory was uh, – uh, there's some very interesting things that happened to my memory. I, I had a person I was playing guitar with. Every day almost. well, that's not true. Maybe three times a week, uh for several years. And he came up to me and uh after the stroke and I didn't know who he was. It was kind of amazing. I had no idea who he was. Wow. And uh and in fact he left after talking with me and I was still wondering who he was. <laughs> <laughs> and by that time I'd pretty much recovered my, you know, normal thinking. So but, this was
0: uh, uh some time after the stroke? Like how many like how long do
1: you oh, think Oh, maybe six months or okay. a year or something like that. But, uh, so there are these gaps, you know, that, that happen to you. As far as the chess, um, I didn't play much afterwards. I would say – I mean, it's, hard, it's always hard to distinguish between lack of practice and age uh, with your game declining or something like that. So, uh, but I would say, yeah, it definitely had an effect, uh, especially on calculation more than anything else, I would so say. So do
0: you remember the feeling like of looking at a chess set for the first time after your stroke?
1: Oh, I was almost immediately. I, I while I was still basically incoherent, I was helping one of my students uh, prepare for a European tournament, and I was pretty good at that. I mean, I was able to locate things on my laptop and talk about the various lines. So, I mean, that's something that's sort of in, ingrained there. So, yeah, my chess—I didn't. I, I, I mean, I forgot things, of course, but I didn't. Um, I'd say it had. It didn't. Maybe it didn't change that much. At least my basic kind of thinking. But I think I had an increased number of maybe blind spots, so actual practical play was more difficult. Yeah. Just, you know, just not seeing things. I had one of those in Isle of Man where I I wrote down a move. Uh, I never do this. I always always make the move and write it down. But I I wrote down my reply to a move, a recapture. And then I went to have a snack, and I came back 15 minutes later, and I was staring at the board. And the piece that was supposed to recapture was just a queen-takes-queen thing. We're still sitting there. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and I had lost fifteen minutes. Yeah, I, I think like that happened, and I I think in a way that's almost typical. There's these little glitches that that, that come up. So I, I imagine that's part of why I, I'm I became a somewhat worse player after um after the stroke.
0: Okay, um, but, um th- that that's interesting. Well, i I mean yes. I'm glad that you retained your vast knowledge. Um, I mean we've we've got it documented with your more than thirty books written, but it's, i'm glad that uh you you know it, it wasn't didn't all vanish um after the stroke
1: well some of it a lot of it surprises me <laughs> I, it's, a, it's funny to pick up a book i wrote and have recognize almost nothing <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's actually true of quite a few authors because you pretty much want to not look at it after you finished it usually most most authors don't want to go back and look at their books and um, I'm always pleasantly surprised. I, I, I always go, wow, that was well-written. Because I always assume, <laughs> well, you remember the bad parts. You right. remember and the things you regret. And, and you also just sort of assume after a while you're so sick of the thing that it can't possibly be well-written. Right. I, I look at my books now and almost always I pick it up and go, wow, this is. I, I should get my students to read this or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I should get more people to read this. This is really fascinating. It's like a stranger wrote it too. Right. That's, That's
0: interesting. interesting. Well, I second it. I mean, I, uh, I had read um, – I had read some of your books over the years, but I revisited some of them preparing for this interview, um, especially Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy. And uh, yeah, it, it, it holds up well. And I mean, there's so much to unpack from all the stuff you've written. But but one thing I wanted to do first off was just sort of get like an update because uh, at the end of Secrets of Modern Chess, Chess strategy—you sort of gaze into the future of chess a little bit and talk about how uh, computers are changing opening preparation—and you muse a little bit about like what direction it would take. And it's you know you sort of set forth one path where like everything becomes even more hyper-specialized in terms of what people um, memorize and like how important preparation is. But you also set forth a potential alternative path where like people just sort of punt in the opening and. Thinking about it from my perspective, I'm curious to hear yours, too. But I sort of felt like the answer has been both. We've we've had a little of each at the top level. How how would you say uh, chess has developed since uh, since that book came out?
1: And obviously yeah, that's I know fascinating. No, sorry. no, I, that's, that's actually very interesting because I think almost everything I said, if you look at my list of 26 modern characteristics and also just listen to other players and what they say, most of those things have held up very well uh, as far as the philosophy of what's going on and why, how people think. and But the predictions, huh. <laughs> you know, as with most predictors, I think I've done a very poor job. I- I'm surprised I even mentioned the punting part because <laughs> cause that's essentially uh, what's really the big change that's happened, which I didn't anticipate at all, um, is that people are just basically playing very – slow uh, non-theoretical things or th- things we would have considered non-theoretical the odd thing is is that they're playing these things where you think it doesn't matter what which of six moves you would play and yet you get to move 18 and there's 12 games with it you right. know in the database so it's very odd it's kind of like ultra theoretical people have all this stuff memorized but at the same time none of it's critical right which I certainly didn't anticipate one thing I did what was going on when I wrote the book is a lot of these lines. I mentioned this uh, in that book and this, and also Chess Strategy in Action, which by the way is probably a better written book. Uh, that's kind of the sequel. So those books go together: Secrets to Modern Chess Strategy and Chess Strategy in Action. Was that um, oh, well, a lot of the critical lines like you know the the Rook B1 Grunfeld or the Semi-Slav Botvinnik Semi-Slav or uh, you know the Knight Orf Poison Pawn or you know all these mega critical lines that are very tactical and depend on, uh, you know, you can lose in one one move, but the theory goes on and on, and pretty soon it's up move 22 or something, that those lines just didn't seem to be getting resolved at all. They were all highly alive, even though they'd been around for the, the dragon variation, which still is, by the way. Uh, a lot of the dragon lines, uh, I, yeah, I could actually probably list a lot if I was, you know, focusing, but um, there's probably 20 lines like this in chess that for... for, for Decades. Uh, just everybody would, would claim there was this refutation or that refutation. Sure enough, the next week or month or year, uh, it was going strong again. And um, I thought that would probably continue because it seemed like the, the influence of computers and heavy computer analysis wasn't really solving these lines. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong, actually. A, a tremendous number of those lines have essentially been solved because because of something maybe I didn't think of. That there, there's some forcing draw somewhere along the line. I noticed Yaron Malinsky mentioned this the other day, and I was happy to hear it because I haven't heard anybody actually say it. But, but a, an enormous number of the old, exciting, fantastic, complicated, uh, uh, tactically and positionally rich lines – uh now there's some point where you have to play a certain way if you don't you're worse but if you do it's there's a perpetual check somewhere if if the person knows it perfectly so that to some extent explains that and the burden of having to keep up with things like that and the work involved explains why the professional players have turned towards things that just don't require as much preparation and probably lead to just as interesting you know don't lead to these forced draws and it's actually amazing when you – I do a lot of theory, and it's amazing how many lines, you know, big old Kings Indians, and it almost doesn't matter what opening it is, um, that there's these draws that are – you know, either you go into the line and you draw, or if you don't, there's other issues. Or there's three or four that all, all end in a draw if they're played properly.
0: Right, yeah. And for the, for the more casual chess fan who's not as steeped in the theory, it's like you don't know that that's the reason, you know? Like – even if, even if a game was played at the top level tomorrow that sort of, you know, impacts the way the other, say, top 200 players play, which obviously it's going to. But, you know, say uh, Ananda Nakamura have a draw in the Poison Pawn or whatever. And it's, you know, that's the reason that that white doesn't go into it or something like that. Um th- there's no like note at the end, generally, if you're just like reviewing the game as a casual fan, so it's hard to know. And sort of um, dovetailing with that, I have a, a, a question from a listener, since um, it's sort of apropos. Um, so uh, Ashish Mukherjee asks, um, you've written several books on the French defense. What do you see as its future at the top level of chess? Well,
1: it's interesting. It's always had a strong place at the top level of chess. There's always been several players playing it, often as a second weapon, or even a third um, and even the people today, you know, Anand used to use it, Caruana has used it, uh, Grishik certainly, um, Nakamura, some, I mean, actually almost all of them at one point or another, but it's clearly down in popularity at the very top, and I think the thing people don't realize is all the openings are down. Nobody plays the pier. so hardly, well, there were hardly any Karakans for quite a while. There have been more recently, but although I'm not, yeah, even at the very top, there have been a little bit more. But it was way down. I mean, the French was clearly the third most popular EPON defense behind the Sicilian and E4E5. And even E4E5 wasn't, was, you know, and the French were played relatively similar, uh, with relatively similar frequency. Well, now, <clears throat> not only has the Sicilian gone way out compared to what it was, you know, it used to be 25% of all chess games, actually, almost 25%. And, uh, but E4E5 has pretty much taken over. And between those two, at the very top. So when you see all these super tournaments, you know you're just seeing the same opening. So when you so when you discuss something like, is the French popular anymore? And it, it's clearly declined percentage-wise uh, at the very top, the top, say, 15 players. Uh, so is every other opening, every other e pawn opening, except e4, e5. So there's this partly that's fashion. Uh, I think it's mostly fashion. I think a lot of those openings will come back. The irony of that is that every, almost every opening now is considered equal if you play it well. Right. I mean, there's almost no opening in chess that isn't okay to play. And ironically, fewer and fewer of them are being played. And I think that's practicality. It's, uh, it's a matter of who has to work hardest and who has the most difficulties, uh, who's the one under the most pressure. And the French is hard to handle. I think the French is difficult to handle. I think the Pierce is difficult to handle. I think El is difficult to handle. Um, and, uh, and a lot of Sicilians even can right. be. Um, whereas E4-E5, I've even heard people say, you know, I mean, at, at Isle of Man, you know, top players uh, mention that <laughs> E4-E5 is so easy.
0: Right. I, think, I think Yeah, Nakamura it's so intuitive, if, you know, if you grew up studying classical chess. And I, I found it interesting that the the Carlson karyakin World Championship, I don't know if this is a correct interpretation or not, but, you know, especially in this modern age when… The, the top players have so much, um, so many people working for them when they're getting ready to play each other, and so <clears> much sort of firepower at their disposal that I, I consider it sort of a referendum on openings when they play each other. I mean, they can, you know, they're they're combing the databases looking for, for something that will give them an edge. And I found it amazing how many of the games were double king pawn, and that even the Sicilian was only only ventured uh, at the end.
1: Exactly. The Zillions down in regular top-level play, too. I think it's not – I hate to say it, but I, it's sad, but ever since Kramnik, I think it's not that they're looking for an edge. They're looking for a uh, draw or That's equality. Right. They're very happy with a draw and uh, or, or at least happy with getting some kind of equality where they haven't lost space. Space is just as important as it's ever been, but I think it's sort of almost universally acknowledged now that – not that having space is necessarily better as I say there's the Pirates and the French and all these other things but that it's um easier right. and that it requires less preparation so I think it's more a matter of comfort and safety mm-hmm. Sa- safety more than anything they don't you don't want to risk a loss uh uh at all really yeah <laughs> with you know with black you're supposed to draw and with white you're supposed to somehow play for an edge and um Sad because I don't think that was ever really true in the past that people would say that you know all you're trying to do is equalize, but in fact the top players would go all out to try and get a very double edged game, hopefully even with an advantage as black. And um,
0: yeah, certainly if you look at someone like Kasparov's games, I mean he, he was was not playing for a draw with
1: black. Sure, sure. Actually, almost any any top player, yeah. Um, I mean there are, so there were players like that, but it all sort of started with Kramnik. I think he just found one, one opening after another that he thought he could draw. First, they were all bishops of opposite colors openings. I mean, even the Sveshnikov he was trying to draw, right? Right. So, and, 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 and then it became things that were much more theoretically at least, or, or superficially at least, sterile than the Sveshnikov, like the Berlin and uh, certain kinds of Slavs, and I, God knows what else. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it just goes on and on, right? He's brilliant at these things.
0: So so John, I know that you're appropriately modest about uh making predictions, but I still feel compelled to, a- <laughs> compelled to ask you so like what do you, where do you think this is headed like is that is are we just going to continue on the same path or will like chess 960 take over at some point um, how, what's gonna happen with uh with the openings arms race?
1: Well, I mean the richness of the game is there n- no problem at all is there. And by the way I should mention before I forget that that in the 26, you know, 50 to 2750 or maybe maybe 2600 or 2550 through 2700 category there's tons of frenches. Yeah. <laughs> by the way I just thought I'd throw that in there that there's plenty of that going on if you get below the super super level. Um, which kind of indicates to most average players that we aren't talking about an opening that is impractical, right? I mean right. if all these top GMs that you and I will never aspire to be anywhere near as good as, or right. <laughs> you know, are playing it. There's, you know, it can't be, can't be that awful. Um, anyways, changing subject. Uh, yeah, I think this business of playing a lot of ready openings and uh, Englishes and King's Indian attacks and all this sort of thing is, um, is kind of healthy for the moment. Um, you know, it's leading uh, to a lot of. Uh, no, I assume we're talking about top level play here. The, the, yeah, the, not yeah. Uh, what direction that's going in, and of course, that's always the most interesting in a way. Um, you know, because it's leading to original positions and uh, it's sort of shifting the critical moments further into the middle game. Uh, and and we're getting maybe more endings than before. Is that possible? I'm not sure. Of course, the time limit means endings don't come up as much. But I think we're getting more overall, partly as, as a result of the nature of the openings. And we're getting some fascinating end game play. You know, these top players, extremely good end game players. You know, people used to complain, ah, oh, they can't play the end games these days. But. But I think that was like saying that tennis players can't serve and volley, or something, or they can't volley at all, or right. it's just it's not true at all. You know, it's it's just one of those myths. People like to hang on to the idea that their players were better than the early, <laughs> you know, the ones now, and uh, that's that's one of the ideas. Is, but I, I think we're we're seeing some fascinating in game play and very good end game play.
0: Okay, because uh, I I know you mentioned offline that you had heard the Polgar interview, so I don't know if you took note, but she. She and another recent guest were a bit critical of they said if they you know if there's a weakness amongst the top players right now, she felt it was uh the end game play
1: well, you know they don't have that much time for the ending, I think it's true that objectively uh objectively it's uh there are you know a fair number of big errors um not really conceptual ones and not really understanding ones more just there's no time left and they're more right. there are tricks. To, tricks to keep track of i mean they're all you know you're always short of time at that point because modern openings even when they've become more yeah even some of the recent simple ones are still more complex there's still more pieces left on the board than there used to be there's very few openings where you have exchange a lot of exchanges uh early on so th- so they still take a lot of time you know they they may resolve into equality more easily but that's not the same as getting to an end you know to, uh, getting to a position that's easy to play right so so i'm not you know, maybe I'm contradicting what I said earlier a little bit, but I, I'm trying to clarify what I think about it myself. Actually, um, what was I going to say about that? Oh, the other thing is that players in the old days. You know, I did at one point. Jeremy Solon was writing this endgame book, and I was he, he was asking me to look into things, uh, look into endings by older players, and I, I started looking at the amazing blunders, that elementary ones, even ones that we would consider book book blunders that uh, capablanca and alaska were making i think the end is just we underestimate how difficult it is it's just an incredibly difficult part of the game yeah and and uh i don't think we realize how bad Smyslov, Botvinnik, you know these guys i mean it's amazing um <laughs> yeah you know, uh just how many crazy errors they made in the end game with really a little more time to think about it and, and, and more, you know more it, it's just uh it just takes too much calculation, which is kind of ironic because there's fewer pieces, right? But it's a very calculating part. That's why people like Shiroff sure and you know, Tal would play such gorgeous endings, you know, because because calculation was so vital. I think, yeah. uh, com- compared to it's a bit of a myth this idea that you know the prin- and it's true that the principles hold in endgames better than they hold in the opening and the middle game. These sort of classical principles. The only problem is everybody knows them. So then it comes down to exact timing. And uh, for some mysterious reason, uh, right. <laughs> it's just an uh, almost... Well, you, you probably know that. I mean, endings... When have you ever played a perfect ending? I mean, it's just incredibly... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? You're asking it's the just... wrong person. <laughs> or, or the right yeah.
0: person, depending on your perspective. But, but so the I answer is I've, never.
1: <laughs> I think they're playing them pretty darn well, actually. Okay, that's I mean, it's funny that... Adan got that criticism in the match the, against uh, Carlson for the you know, a couple endings he didn't play very well one in particular and you know really if you look at it, it was just a question of calculating he was, took a sort of calculated risk that some line wouldn't work this is what usually happens It's not that they don't understand some you know, <laughs> fundamental principle it's more that they go for something that if it works tactically gets them out of their problems or leads them to a winning position or whatever mm-hmm. and and but they've missed one thing. You know, three moves down the line, or six moves down the line, or whatever. Um, and when that doesn't work, it looks like they've played incredibly stupidly because they did something that was theoretically uh, against fundamental principles. Somebody goes, "Oh, didn't he know enough not to put the you know, right <laughs> on the side of the board or something?" And and uh, and then you know, boy, Anand must be a real wiki.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. <So. laughs> um, well, John, you mentioned pr- chess principles, which are uh, you know part of your thesis of um, of uh, I mean, obviously, you've written tons of books, so I don't only want to talk about uh, Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy and the follow-up, which, which, by the way, I have to uh, come clean and admit that I haven't read and I didn't realize, uh, you know, I he- I've heard you say and I heard John Hartman say that it's um, possibly a better book. So now it's moving to the top of the pile of uh, the chess books that yeah. I need to read, uh, Chess Strategy in Action. Um, but anyway, that was a long prelude for another um another listener question and this listener is anonymous so it could be from <laughs> magnus carlson it could be from woody harrelson um or anyone in between uh but the question is recently john hartman wrote in a chess life review about jacob Ag- Ogard 's thinking inside the box something about a 10-year feud between agard and watson i believe starting with excelling at chess by agard versus watson's modern chess strategy would be curious to hear about watson's thoughts on the so-called feud
1: yeah, I mean, we neither one of us, I don't think, has said too much. He, I, I do think he's he's a bit obsessed with it. I mean, bringing it up in his new book, and it's been many years. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe in a sense, feud was, is a better word than real disagreement because most of what he said about what I said wasn't very concrete or specific, and didn't really take issue. And most of what he says now is very similar to what I said at the time. So I'm not sure if we have that fundamental philosophical uh, disagreement. It's fun for people because they aren't used to. There hadn't really been any philosophy since what Reddy and Nimzovich or something, right? right. <laughs> and there hadn't been any of these disputes. And I think people loved it. It was this great idea that we were fighting about these fundamental things, and they could people. You know, chess players love to philosophize. There's that philosopher thing again. And so they enjoyed writing long essays about why I was wrong or why Ogar was wrong or you know, what What was really going on in, in uh, chess fundamentals and chess theory. Um, yeah, he still, yeah, throws out these comments once in a while, and he puts their things on his blog and things like that, but I, I haven't paid any attention to that for a long time. Um, I do think that almost everything that people objected to in the first year or so of to the to the secrets of modern chess strategy, outside of some sp- specifics, which some people were brilliant in pointing out that were just wrong, um, but but as far as the philosophic points I was making, if you can call them that, um, I don't I think they just were universally acknowledged. But but you know they were already known by all the ground by the top grandmasters. It's not like I was saying anything new. It's just that they, they maybe I was saying something you new. Know, it's just they knew these things, but they hadn't been writing. A lot of the stuff hadn't been in writing, and I can't tell you how many top players, you know, said that the the that the only thing about the book was it was all obvious. <laughs> you know, the supposedly controversial things I was saying,
0: right? Because yeah.
1: yeah, because they were already playing modern chess and modern chess, and you'll see this in notes all over the place where they'll just say, "Well, in modern chess, we don't do this," or you know, <laughs> this is. This is just typical of chess today or chess in modern times. And it's something, some principle-breaking thing. Um, so I don't think what I said is very controversial anymore. I guess that's too bad, isn't it? It's more fun <laughs> to have a <laughs> you know, it Sounds a like one
0: of these uh, fake rap battles. I was a, I was a rap fan, <laughs> especially in the 90s. And they were, of course, uh, Notorious Big and Tupac, obviously, they legitimately... Uh, <laughs> legitimately didn't like each other because they both ended up getting shot. So <laughs> I hope that doesn't uh, yeah. end up happening with you and uh, the, the esteemed Jakob uh, Bogard. So I'm <laughs> hoping it's more along the lines of the fake feud to sell records.
1: And, and, you know, the other thing I should mention about those books is they aren't really teaching books. I mean, maybe over the years I've decided they're a little more useful than I used to think, but I was very careful to say that these books were be a description of modern chess and how it's evolved. As opposed to, you should do this. You should do that. And having said that again and again, it didn't really sink in. I should have made it more explicit in different places in the book, I guess, because I got probably most of the objection I got, even from good players, was um, I I can't teach my kids this, or you really think I should, you know? And I don't. I don't teach using that, you know, that approach. Um, Maybe a little bit. I like to keep my students open-minded but you really it's difficult to get away uh to teach chess without reference to certain you know people want something to stand on right they want something solid and um and there are parts of the game you know almost all those classical principles derive from the end game i think i mentioned that in both books probably but um and and of course those principles still are true in the end game most of them um you know the knights of good in the center of the board it's bad on the side of the board right the bishop should be can't be blocked off by its own pawns you know you look at endings and we're talking about things that are true 90 percent of the time but a lot of the principles in that that are listed in the books like secrets of modern i mean uh, chess strategy and action i talk about some of this is they aren't even true 50 percent of the time you know like for example exchanging pieces when you have less space you know that's that's good that's true of another thing is they come from classical openings you know, in double E-Pawn, that's probably true. Maybe, maybe not as true as people would like it to be, but true, more at least, well, well over fifty percent of the time, especially in the ones they were playing in the nineteenth century. Um, and the queen's gambit, the same thing. There's a lot of um, lot to be said for clearing the board off a little bit for black, who has less space. Mm-hmm. But then you start looking at openings generally, and you'll see it's the opposite, very, very often, because clearing off sp- spaces, uh, clearing off pieces helps the person who has more space um, consolidate their ending advantage or even their late middle game advantage. Uh, I mean, there are countless examples. I always say almost more than – probably more than 50% of the time it's better to for the player that has more space not uh, – to simplify.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, of course, it's – I guess my point is it's very specific. You could never make a rule about it. Um, but they did, didn't they? Right. <laughs> they did make a rule out of it. <laughs> and uh, it's just silly. It's not yeah. even – it's not even an arguable rule. And there's plenty of those that are um, still quoted in annotations by strong players even sometimes. But but I think that's because strong players aren't thinking in those terms. And, you know, if they grew up with some book that said that, they have fun saying, well, in this," they realize that in this position is true. And so they'll sort of cite the principle, but they would never play by that principle. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it's tricky,
0: and you might not notice as much when you're sort of breaking the rule, or you might not notice how often you're breaking the rule. I mean, not that it's a rule, the, the guideline.
1: Or, you you know, you're writing notes, so it's fun to quote something, to write right. something explanatory. I, I notice chess players really enjoy doing their annotations, and generally, why they enjoy putting some prose in there and some explanatory material, maybe a joke or two. And, and uh, um, so I think, in a way, maybe maybe some offhand comment about some principle you can't take very seriously at least you know that would be the way i'd interpret that but uh you know jacob he's written some great books they're mostly teaching books and uh, don't have too much to do with principles right uh so we were really talking past each other to a large extent i hate to make it less romantic but (laughs) I, i i feel like he was very unfair uh about well, you know, I all started because he did he did a lot of personal attacks, mm-hmm. and that was a little strange, <laughs> and sort of continued to do them. And also, I think his English was kind of lacking at the time, so sometimes he'd really misinterpret something I said, and I, I don't I hope not intentionally, but I mean, he would really get it wrong. I'd be making some comment about some chess position or something, and he would he would uh, interpret it as being like the opposite of what I said and then get really angry about it. Huh. So it was, a, it was a little odd. I think uh, you know. I, at one point, I knew him. We actually roomed together briefly, and he, um, at the time, maybe maybe at that time, his English wasn't wasn't perfect. I'm not sure, but anyway, he writes great books. People love his books, and uh, he's well worth reading. And he's very knowledgeable. And this company he's uh, helped found is uh, obviously producing terrific books.
0: Yeah, I, the, I agree with all of that. Chess, and uh, uh, yeah, obviously, the chess world is uh, is. Uh, very lucky to have both of you uh write, writing regularly so <laughs> well
1: um, he does much more than i do so yeah yeah
0: well so your, uh, your ser- legacy speaks ser- for itself so
1: i certainly don't have anything against him at all i think uh that's uh
0: you
1: know okay. Uh, okay 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 so yeah i mean as
0: way. i told you offline i got several several people wanted to to hear about it so i felt like it was a topic that we should visit but i don't feel like there's a as you said there's not that much more to add um all right. Well, John, I want to get into your background a little bit because um, I didn't know until I started preparing for this interview that you had, I don't know if you are offended by someone calling you a hippie, but uh, you had a bit of a peripatetic youth, especially uh, coming out after college.
1: Yeah, very much so. And in fact, that's when I played most of my chess was when I was very young. I've probably, I have probably played a lot of less chess than most of the people you're going to be, most of the top players anyway, that... Or regular players that you would be interviewing, um, because I became an electrical engineer and uh, spent a lot of time engineering and didn't play much chess during that time. Although I continued to write uh, things, but but when I first got out of school, yeah, I mean that's I I uh, yeah traveled around the world basically and worked at odd jobs and uh, and then after a while I started doing the chess circuit and it's amazing to me looking back how few years that really was uh, maybe. Oh, I haven't really calculated it, but maybe seven or eight years maybe where I was playing pretty regularly, you know, at Swiss Systems and all over the country. And, yeah, we used to sleep under tables and outside. I, I had a uh, sleeping bag and I'd sleep in the park when everybody wow. else was sleeping in the hotel. And, and But that was more common back then. I mean, that was a thing that, you know, uh, counterculture people did. They went to chess tournaments and, you know spent no money whatsoever right (laughs) so uh, um, although maybe I was a little more extreme you know in retrospect I think there weren't as many people as I thought but of course when you're in the middle of a culture you don't really realize that Um,
0: as many people as you thought doing what
1: doing doing that kind of uh, hippie lifestyle or free free lifestyle Uh, uh, you know not not really being part of our culture in a sense right consumer culture yeah and uh, so, uh, being on the road, just being on the road all the time, <laughs> yeah, and hitchhiking and things like that. You know, I would hitchhike to tournaments and things.
0: Amazing, yeah. I mean, it sounds it sounds fun to me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I won't I won't be doing it anytime soon, but uh, but I I, I definitely um, I can understand the impulse, and I, you know, it's good that some people have those impulses and never act on them. So um,
1: I mean, well, it, well, it, was, it was kind of a values thing too. I mean, it was a question of uh, uh, sort of cultural values and
0: uh what and, do you like what were the values that you were um hoping well, to embody know,
1: one, well you know one thing is that we're in the middle of the vietnam war and oh, wow. and i was definitely uh early, from an early stage uh someone dressed dramatically against that and uh i felt that what american culture had a lot to do with why we were acting that way and uh and I think that as and there are a lot of people at the time. Yeah, I mean, you've probably read about this, but I mean, a lot of the counterculture was, in fact, a, a reaction to a very consumer lifestyle. And uh, I mean, I don't know how much of this you've. I mean, I would think, you know, they, they have retrospectives on the 60s right. and 70s. And, yeah, no. And I, I mean,
0: yeah, I did take a class on the Vietnam War, and I've watched the Ken Burns documentary. So <laughs> uh, oh,
1: yeah.
0: I'm not as. Uh, not as um, Unprepared as I am on some su- subjects that uh, my <laughs> guests <laughs> s- try to steer me into, <laughs> um, but so could you tell us a little? Like, could you nail down the timeline for us a little bit? Because you you dropped out of Harvard, is that right, or did you graduate?
1: Yes. Nope. Dropped out. Okay. And, and then that, and that was related to the war too. Okay. And uh, and uh, in the seventies, I I well, one thing is I had the chess house in Denver. Right. Was, yeah, uh,
0: that's on my list of topics to talk about for sure. So there let's we you, go. Let's there we hear about gonna, it.
1: They, with the amazing Chris Hendrickson, we, we lived together and started this chess house and wrote Chess Man Comics together, which is – that's kind of a funny story in itself because there's a few people that know about Chess con- Comics, but they don't realize that we just slapped it together <laughs> while right. we were um, – well, she was heavily stoned, I think, at the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, w- I wondered days, about and that, it. yeah. That's we brought it down to the local copy shop and made, you know, 100 or 200 <laughs> copies. I can't even remember which. And we gave away most of them. So <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: it was, it was a, a very amateurish affair. And it's always funny that people ask me about it as if it was some sort of major publication, and, you know. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and there were two copies of that because later on I did one with uh, Sven Murang. That's Chessman number 2. I don't know if you have these comics. Do you have these comics?
0: Uh, I don't, but uh, John Hart- Hartman in the extensive preparation that he did for uh, me <laughs> he, he sent me a couple uh, screenshots so um they had yeah, that was quite funny and he sent me some pictures of uh you handing them to people like bent larson um just just amazing i mean the- oh
1: well yeah and recently uh, i did uh now i've got a picture of anand uh, uh nigel short who i actually just think is wonderful nigel and i are uh, political opposites and uh he also is very controversial of course as you know with all of his he keeps getting in trouble with his political <laughs> right. statements. political but uh, frankly, I just like him a lot. He's very fun and open, and just a good guy. So, um,
0: okay. Well, before we go on, I have to get I have yeah. to nail down the details on this chess house. So it was in oh, yeah. Co- in Colorado, and it's called a house, but it was basically just like a, a chess club, right?
1: It was a house. Uh, we we had a house. It was when we li- we lived upstairs. And, uh, again, it was kind of hippie-ish in a lot of ways because people would kind of come in and out and stay with us and a lot of people doing illegal drugs and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> a lot of stuff going on. And downstairs, we'd have just regular tournaments in, in Denver, uh, which had a reasonably big chess scene. Uh, one thing I always mention to people when, when we're talking, uh, generally, I don't know if you've approached this subject yet, but there used to be a lot more clubs in the United States, and a lot of them had permanent uh, sites. Whereas now you have, you know, the mechanics and maybe the Marshall and, I don't know, San Diego Chess Club, actually, of all things. Uh, there are very few that are open all week, or that at least are the same, that are devoted. The same building is devoted. we're, we're Usually now clubs, to the extent they exist, are once a week in, uh, you know, maybe a motel room somewhere, or hotel right. room somewhere. Or, um, and uh, it's kind of amazing to see how that's changed. I don't know if that's come up on your show before, that whole Phenomenon. And it's how come interesting up a bit,
0: you know. When when Ben Feingold was on, he he's he's opening the Atlanta Chess Center. It's open now, but it wasn't when when he was on. So we talked about it a little bit. And I've been on the board of the Pittsburgh Chess Club, which sort of falls in the category of um, you know, it's it's venerable. It's been around a long time, but it's not open full hours now. And I'm definitely, you know, it's uh, I'm privy to the challenges that uh, modern day like brick and mortar chess clubs. <laughs>
1: is there a room or is there a whole building
0: ah there's a room Uh, yeah yeah
1: Yeah. even that is sort of unusual yeah Uh, but, uh, but when I was growing up in Nebraska of all places where there were you know handful of chess players you know there was still a permanent place where people went that you know Rashevsky had given simul's at and a <laughs> couple block had come to and you know um and and played every day and people came in every single day and for you know for a 10-hour stretch and or more and uh so it's very things have changed i mean this is omaha nebraska and right. lincoln was even more and lincoln was more active you know he's uh so but, uh, yeah, so forgot about it, St. Louis.
0: Does yeah, it make you ahead. sad to see their uh, their demise?
1: Well, yeah, a little bit because I think there was always this idea that as you traveled anywhere in the world, one place you could go is the the chess club. And in fact, when you were traveling and maybe had maybe had a problem or something, or maybe you were a little short on resources or something, there was a good chance that you could get some help at a at a chess club and or, go to or chess hustle club. someone. Hell yeah, <laughs> I should one point, I did a little of that back when I knew how to play one minute against five. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, boy, that was a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the hippie lifestyle, I, I slept on the Heath in uh, England for over a year. Wow! <laughs> and, and then I'd walk over to the chess club, which was mm-hmm. a cafe, a chess cafe. But it was basically like a club because so many people played there on a continual basis. And uh, so yeah. I think that's every country that's happened to to some extent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, yeah, I think I kind of miss it, and I think, I think everybody would enjoy having it around. It's just not economically feasible, and the online play has ch- taken over completely. I would say. I mean, it's taken over. Well, it's basically just dominates chess, right? Online play.
0: Yeah, yeah, which so. I think is is more good than bad. But it is, yeah. I, I definitely get what you're saying, especially about the idea of people traveling and not being able to just go meet their kindred spirits.
1: Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with having person-to-person contact either. I mean, that's kind of a nice, a nice thing. But yeah, no, of course, online play has uh, expanded the popularity of chess just enormously, right? right? I mean, it's just beyond belief, actually, and and in particular on young people who maybe couldn't travel before because their parents would have to bring them somewhere, right? Right. So, so I can't argue with online play in principle, but I just think um, I do think it's sad. I also think this—I mean, typical old man view—but I think the time controls. So too many people are playing chess its too quick and a lot of times they don't get any better doing that I mean there's arguments on both sides but I know one person did sort of a study of the ones who played the most on ICC and it actually declined after 10 years of playing huh. you know yeah and it makes sense because you're just giving yourself these bad habits and push and making them worse and worse and even kids who are able to handle that pretty well they're better at it by not letting it affect their play you know too many of them that there's a point where it's kind of sad because the winning and losing, and you can see this at tournaments, regular tournaments too, absolutely overwhelm the idea of the interest in the game itself. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but but a lot of kids, you know, the the idea that they were a queen down and about to be mated, but they won with one second left. You know, it's the fact that they won and they beat X, Y, or Z just thrills them and and after a while after years and years of teaching you realize that's a fundamental thing they actually aren't interested in the position right you know you are you and i when we win that game you know (laughs) we maybe aren't that thrilled about it
0: yeah well i think there's a sort of there's a darwinian urge to grade based on result i mean i i feel it in myself and i try to and like students and try to push back against it but to me, I, th- I don't know. I think it might be more natural. It's just it probably comes out more in faster games because there's kind of like a anything-goes mentality to anything.
1: Absolutely. Oh, no, we were no different in terms of our desire for results. It's just that as a natural... Has a natural consequence of having a lot of postmortems and a lot right. more book reading, reading a lot of books. And there was more, I think, interest in the game, sort of in a, some sort of, in the abstract, in a sense.
0: Yeah, like a, uh, a truth in the position that, that like the idea of truth in like a you know game thirty game is is uh, it's kind of it's it's not even related, you know.
1: It, it uh, could be there, but only if you probably go over it afterwards and really think about it. And uh, yeah, you know,
0: and it's not realistic, like. It might not have been realistic. Like for me, for example, in playing a classical game, it's not realistic for me to have found the truth anyway. But it's at least somewhat like, you know, it's uh, you could dream about it. But in Game 30, it's like, okay, there was a win there, but come on, I'm not going to see this, like, you know,
1: exactly whatever computer
0: move or, you know, whatever eight-move sequence.
1: And and how likely are you when there's an obvious move to be made to look around for the less obvious moves? Right. and uh, you know, I've always done that. I've always looked for the less obvious moves, and you know, it has been been—I'm almost addicted to looking for the, yeah. <laughs> the move that isn't normal. And um, and uh, you know, that's very satisfying actually when you can do something different or unusual. Or uh, but becoming increasingly unrealistic. And I think for me, especially as you get older and you're slower anyway, it's a very bad combination. <laughs> <Yeah, I, laughs> trying try to play originally and uh, and quickly.
0: Yeah, so, I, I, I agree.
1: <laughs> <laughs> doesn't work for.
0: So getting back to to when you were playing most actively, I mean I know that you played all of the sort of American legends, and you as you mentioned you you made your way to Europe as well so like what are your fondest memories from? I mean it must be hard to even pick a few, but do you have any stories that jump to mind about like interactions with uh with players that our listeners would all know
1: well i I sometimes tell my tall story, not like I was buddy buddy with tall or anything, but it was very emotionally very powerful he he was playing at hastings i wasn't even playing there but um i went out with him and kuzman drinking oh nice <laughs> and be, and before i did that uh, i was hanging around while he was talking with various people who weren't even chess players they were sort of sponsors of the tournament or something like that or just people socially important people at hastings or something and his his it's really true what they said about him at least when he was somewhat younger um, his just generosity of spirit just poured out and, and his alertness and his, he's very sympathetic. He, he, he was, he got close to people just naturally. And it was just very exciting to watch him talk to some, you know, some old lady who knew nothing about chess and was, you know, throwing out a bunch of vacuities. <laughs> were just completely irritating. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter. He sympathized with that person like he did with every anybody. And it was just wonderful. And, uh, uh, just a very insightful guy, anyway, so we went out drinking and um, <laughs> it wasn 't much of an experience really he they, they would walk into one of these pubs, you know Hastings has one pub after another along the ocean they 'd walk in and they they 'd hit the uh, hit the bar like that if you can hear that uh-huh. they 'd rap the bar and they 'd say cognac <laughs> so you know that that was there he didn 't speak English as far as I know uh, a little bit but um, and uh, the pub tender would, would come up and give them a cognac, and they'd just swig it down, usually in one gulp, maybe a couple. And then they'd hit the bargain and say, cognac. <laughs> and uh, and the guy would come up with another one, and they'd swig it down. And you know maybe we'd say a few words, but then we'd be off walking to the next one. And they'd do the exact same thing. It was like a ritual, and they just kept drinking. And later on, I, I really realized that this was even true of the emigres who came to the United States and uh, that, that drinking was – I mean, if you read Sosanko, I guess you probably get that idea about uh, – by the way, those books are still, I think, really wonderful. They're kind of romantic, and they may not even be completely accurate, but the, if you read some of those books, the historical books about Russian players, mostly about Russian players. And I
0: haven't, about, but uh, yeah, the the subject of book recommendations is coming, so those are by uh, Sosanko?
1: Oh, uh, Sosanko, yeah. They're just wonderful. They're just essays. They have nothing. You're not going to learn any uh, moves or anything. Okay. Uh, but they're mostly – they start out Russian silhouettes, I think, so it's all about old Russian – Players and a lot of you know eccentric ones that you've never heard of, and uh, as well as the well-known ones, they're uh, they're based on his. Uh, well, in fact, I think they're copies from his New In Chess magazine essays, which he used to. I think every issue have one of these in some player. And as time went on, he expanded. I think he did one on Miles. He did Portish. He did uh, he did he started doing some Western players. Okay, but uh, but his specialty is the old days in the Soviet Union, and it's just. It's just so much fun. It's just to read about these characters and personalities. I mean, the stress of living under that system, you know, brought out. I think that's almost a stereotype, but I think it brought out, you know, the most amazing creativity and and just toughness, of course. And, and, uh, you know, in in a way, there's an advantage. (laughs) That's a terrible way to put it, but there's a plus side in terms of development of human personalities to living under a difficult system like that, um, that seems to happen, you know, inst- you, that, that, uh, all, so many, all, so many of these players were just so interesting and so colorful and so unique. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm sure that's not because Stalin was encouraging unique individuals. Right. <laughs> I think it was a reaction to that. And yeah. the, and the fact that, uh, that chess was this escape from all that, and and you know the absolute central point of so many people's lives. You know, so many because uh, those are you know all the pretty much all the great players were were in Russia at that time, or certainly most of them. Yeah. Um, so. Uh,
0: Okay, so I want. There's a lot from <laughs> from that I want to talk about, but first I need a little more detail on drinking with with Tall. So, did, did oh
1: well, I mean, the sad part is, it's not like I talked with him a whole bunch. I did a little bit when we were in the hotel, you know, sort of half, just sort of pointing out some. We, there was a chessboard at one of them, and you know, just sort of watching him move pieces around, and and that's another stereotype that's true. You know, the guy was just staggeringly fast and seeing these strange things that other people don't see. You know, you, no matter how many good players you're around, it's sometimes are it's just a few players that are just stand out that way. I'm sure Kasparov's like that. Um, you know, who just kind of their their hands dart out and there's a move on the side of the board you didn't even consider, you know. Right. <laughs> and you're just, just mind blown by um, you know, because basically to become a professional player, I mean, especially in the United States, you have to be kind of normal in a lot of ways and in, in your style. Uh, you, you know, that's the best you can do is sort of master normal chess. There's just not enough leeway, uh, you know, economically or in any other respect to to, to stray. Uh, whereas, you know, with these old great geniuses, you, you know, you could – you could be a little irregular and, and odd, and play, you know, play more creatively and get away with it. And, you know, it has to become much more practical. I'm, I'm sort of changing the subject a little bit, aren't I? But I think that I think that some of these great players, um, yeah, and I'm sure it's still true, uh, are great partly because they're able to to see things that other people they just consider things that other people aren't considering because it's so hard to play well. Right. That, that you need a narrow vision probably to be a perf- consistently play well without mistakes that's going to narrow your view in a lot of ways so you know some of these great players somehow it hasn't really narrowed their view they've they've managed to good, you know retain that
0: and you think uh, that's still true, or
1: to a to a less? I'm sure it's still true. It must be still true because there's different. Well, you know what is separating the 2600s from the 2800s. You know, there's got to be something like that going on. But I think it's less so for the reasons we talked about earlier. Just the practicality, the time controls, the fact that you can't. I think, I think practicality. You know, Larson. I mean, uh, Carlson sort of. Personifies practicality, right? So did yeah. Kramnik. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, he's a very creative player in his own way, but it's in a very subtle way. And, and even when he's being creative, I mean, it's actually kind of funny. Sometimes you look at some of Carlson's best games, and he's making a lot of second-best moves. And um, you kind of wonder, how can that be? He's playing people who are almost perfect. To my mind, seem like perfection in their chess. So if they're playing perfectly and he's playing second-best moves, why is he winning? Well, of course, they aren't playing perfectly, as it turns out. I mean, chess is just infinitely subtle, isn't it? Yeah. But the, the creativity is on a different level now. It's a different, different part of the game, maybe. I mean, guys like Aronian are staggering that way. I mean, right. just... You know, late middle game. You know, Aronian's just outrageously brilliant. And, uh, um, well, I suppose they all are in their own way, right? They mm-hmm. must be. Why, why, what are they doing up there? <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the, the way I, since I never really experienced that in the context of modern chess, I guess I think of it in terms of the older players. And there were always sort of the standard wood pushers who could be incredibly strong, but didn't, you analyze with them and they never, you, they didn't. You know, you felt like you were just as good as they were, even though you weren't. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> uh, whereas guys, uh, you know, Larry Christensen is a good example in America of someone who just, it was just so much fun to see him make suggestions because no one else was made. There'd be four grandmasters around. And we'd all be looking at the same, you know, we'd all be looking at this position and there'd be various things and Larry would come up and suggest something just out of the world and it would be right or, or it'd at least be very interesting and, you know, strong and creative. And uh, So there are players that just sort of have that touch. You know that, and
0: uh, so do you have anyway. a do you have a favorite amongst the modern players? You mentioned Aronian. Is he your favorite or?
1: Oh gee, I should have. I should be right. I, you know, I don't think I've ever been asked this. Who of Who of the current top players? Wow, hmm. I do enjoy some of these sort of eccentric types like like Notomniachiichi and uh, yeah and. Uh, Drabubba. Sometimes a lot of people like somebody Drabubba. like Yabava, yeah, 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 and, and uh, I do, I do enjoy th- th- those guys, and they're of course incredibly strong. Um, let me think about who are the top players in the world. <laughs> 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 Take a little uh, list here. Um, let me see. Well, I mean, they're all so good, but gee, that's that's an interesting question.
0: Well, we'll we'll go with Aronian uh, since since you mentioned yeah, there him you go. without prompting. There you go. Um, okay. Okay, so John, I've I've only got a few well actually I, I have a litany of more questions, but I've only got a little more time unfortunately. Okay. Um so I as a, you know, renowned author yourself and as well as someone who um has reviewed, you know, countless chess books, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for some some recommendations um whether uh both from a practical and like, you know, chess history as well.
1: Oh, okay. I can. Uh, I give my sort of classic, classic ones. I mean, I don't know. Well, yeah. Recently, actually, these these uh, these Gelfin books are really superb. Yeah. I think. Um, I was just going to say something really quick. Nakamura has always been a big favorite of mine. Right. car I love I love Hikaru's games. Uh, he's also gotten sort of more, by necessity, more sort of narrow in his in his games and more practical. Nevertheless, he's still he's still got it. He's got that magic.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, it's still but, uh, and you know looking at his games from when he was younger that's still in him it's just yeah like you say absolutely
1: absolutely and it's, yeah so he's got to be way up there um okay uh books oh boy well that's maybe we should talk about different areas or something but okay um, well i
0: have one listener question again from ashish asking um a couple books uh for players below 2200 so let's start with that (laughs) <laughs> oh, That's boy. only uh that only narrows it down a little I guess. I mean you can probably take out the Galfond and Nagard, and Deveretsky books and uh, but not much else.
1: Yeah. Um you mean to, well he probably means for improvement and I'm always terrible at that. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> but um well it doesn't have to be
0: for improvement just whatever, you know, whatever resonated with you the most hmm. or you would recommend for your students or
1: um, yeah, what do I remember? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I really like uh, games collections. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, again, that a Gelfin's an example. Gelfin's game collection from many, several years ago is fantastic. Anand's game collection is superb. Um, and really, who's isn't in a way? Even some of the lower, the less... Known players like Bolagon have a terrific games collections. The first Damsky Kramnik one is great, and so I mean I always recommend games collections. I think they're fun. They keep your interest. For me, books, the main thing is you're having fun with them because basically even a bad book can teach you a lot about chess, because if you're interested and addicted to looking at the moves, and if you take a you know a, a good reasonably critical attitude, which you really have to do with a chess book, um, you know, if you're asking yourself questions like, why didn't he go here, or why didn't he do that, um, you're going to learn a lot. So in terms of learning, I've never been that convinced that one book teaches you more than any other, um, I mean, a little bit, but... but it's really. Did you? How addicted were you to it? How much did you love it? How much did you get into the positions and enjoy it? And that's going to vary from from person to person. So if you're reading a book and that everybody's recommended and you just find it, you know, like paint drying or something or watching the grass grow, um, I just give it up. Like, get, get another book. Get something you enjoy. Yeah. I think because first of all, you're going to stick to it. If, if you're trying to be on some sort of studying regimen, which almost all students are supposed to be, right? I mean, every teacher says they're supposed to be doing that. Uh, then it, you're not going to stick to it. You're not going to really learn much unless you're reading things that are fascinating and are fun and, and and you you enjoy. Maybe someone you want to emulate, or maybe if it's opening something you want to play and you're just thrilled with. And you know, if it happens to be some opening that your teacher doesn't approve of, so what? You know. Um, so uh, of course there're tremendous opening books coming out, but um, you know, all over the place. I don't know how I would even narrow that down. I guess it depends on. I could name you one for each. Subcategory,
0: <laughs> That's okay. You know, well, yeah, for, we, don't, we so, don't need that for the opening books, but but that's I mean, that's I love these
1: biographies, you know, uh, the Nimsevich ones and the what else book on Breyer just came out, and I was fascinated looking through I wouldn't really recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> some, some, somewhat 700 page book on, on <laughs> Breyer, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, which is interesting, by the way, from the standpoint of uh, chess history and what people were saying about theory and positions. It's uh, nice. It's interesting. He's one of the most creative players ever, and it's just astonishing how narrow-minded. <laughs> <laughs> Almost everything he says is, and how limited, and how much it reflects that sort of old principled point of view. Huh. Uh, I mean, you really la- you have to laugh at a lot of these things. Um, but anyway, uh, let me think for a second. Uh, what what has come out recently? Well, Maybe you have something. What's a book that you've been interested? Well, in?
0: Well, I recently? can. T- I mean, I can tell you. I, I as as regular listeners know. I you know this this podcast is my chess time right now. Like, I mean, I play once in a while. And I if I read a book, it's generally because I have a, a guest coming on. Because um, uh-huh. my my kids are quite young, and I work. So oh, yeah. um, I mean, you know, we've also had guests say like, you can always make time, which I guess is true. But I'm not going to wake up like, you know, my kids already get me up at 630. I'm not going to wake up at five to read a chess book, like because I'm, you know, because the fire burns so bright. So, so for me, I'll just say who, what guests have recommended most, which is the Agard books, the Dvoretsky Endgame Manual. Um, a lot of people like Tal's, uh, you know, Tal's Collected Games.
1: Um, oh, Tal's Collector Games, absolute, total classic. Yeah, I haven't talked about the classics yet. That's one of the great books, his best games, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny you mention that Endgame manual because I've yet to talk to anybody who's actually read it. Right. I think it's very, very impractical. It's very heavy. It's yeah. very specialized examples that you'll never get over the board. I actually don't like that book much at all as a teaching book. I mean, obviously, right. it's a classic in terms of uh, treatise.
0: Yeah, but, Hikaru uh, made it sound a little bit like going to the dentist or something. <laughs> like, you know, you uh, you don't want to do it, but you feel better having done it sort of thing. Um,
1: at least right, fit. but you know, a lot of top players don't know about any other endgame books. They right. are book readers to begin with, so they kind of hear about that and think they should read it. Um, I think you'd be better off with a simpler – there's so many good endgame books around. You almost can't miss because it's a fairly easy kind of book to read uh, – to write. Endgame books, you know, have pretty much the same material. I, I like just even even fundamental chess endings is one I always recommend. The mm-hmm. Lamprecht and Mueller one, the Mueller endgame series is good. Uh, Silman's endgame book is fantastic. Yeah, that one's uh, been
0: recommended quite a bit, and it's great great yeah. for teachers. I'd
1: be very interested how many of these people have actually read much of the Devereuxsky book. My guess is, I mean, in the case of my students, they kind of talk about it, but they haven't really read it. Um, and, you know, the amount that you absorb, if you want to get good at end games, I can't imagine it being very useful because, <laughs> I, just, I mean, you just don't learn enough fast enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> it take years to learn one position or something. And, and uh, so I, I guess I would disagree with that one from a teaching standpoint. I guess if you're, in a way, it's almost like a problem book, right? And by the way, problems <laughs> are absolutely fantastic. Uh, yeah. You know, studies, studies and problems are so much fun. Uh, just, just brilliantly fun but again I don't know how much they teach you um, probably very little because they're so unrealistic and and besides that you have to look for moves that are completely illogical and would always be wrong uh, right
0: you know, yeah uh,
1: 9,999 times out of 10,000 they'd be wrong yeah I mean uh, classic books I mean I always uh, well I, I still think you should read things like My System and um, maybe Chess Proxis I think My mm. System still a wonderful book and it's fun and it's I'm using, you know, New and Chess has an edition that's very good uh, of that and the other Nimswich stuff. And um, yeah, Tall and uh, yeah, games collections again, Bad Vinnick's games, El Yakin's. I mean, I love things like uh, Andrew Soltis's Soviet Chess, and uh, is a wonderful book to read. So I like the sort of somewhat historical books. We're looking through this Blackburn book now, same publisher. You know, the McFarland books are great fun to read. Um I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on the uh okay, the classics. Well, I think thing.
0: you've given you given us plenty yeah. of red meat. Uh <laughs> okay. any any dedicated um, listeners will, will have will be quite busy. Um
1: so. yeah, I'd be very interested what one what other people have recommended, uh that I uh, 'cause okay. I'd probably agree with most yeah, of Yeah, I'll They're,
0: send you the link. I've actually on my okay. on the podcast website I've made a list.
1: So Okay, um, I can look at that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, John, I would love to keep you for longer, believe me, but but uh, I have to go do work, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> what? So, yeah, yeah, it's it's outrageous. That's um, very sad. But I just want to uh, express my profound gratitude. I'm really a huge fan of yours, and I think you're you're a great uh, great representative of chess, and you know so much. Um, you know, you've got so much knowledge to share. So, if and for any listeners who enjoyed this interview, uh, you should definitely be watching his his YouTube show. Uh, tune in live and ask questions if you can. But if not, uh, catch it on YouTube later. Um, it's it's quite a resource.
1: Well, I, I'd like to say just real quickly that um, your what I've noticed about your show that's so much fun is you're just a very good listener, which is something I don't think I was for the, my first year, or at least, uh, in fact, maybe I never became and. Uh, that makes such a pleasurable show uh, that you that you aren't flying in with a lot of random opinions like I used to do. <laughs> I, yeah, really, no, it makes a very pleasant and interesting um, approach, and I really appreciate the space in which to say things. I just thought I'd mention that. And, uh, oh,
0: thanks. Well, this, uh, yeah, I, I consider my guest the talent in, behind this production, so I try to get out of the way, like uh, in most cases. And um, and you know, the other thing about listening is like. You know, in the age of smartphones, I have a hard time putting mine down and when, you know, when I get the chance to talk to people like you and like great chess players, for me it's a it's an amazing opportunity. So I just like to to sit back and enjoy it. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a special thing to just have a conversation with someone and be focused solely on that. So it's nice that I'm that I have space carved out for it with this podcast.
1: Okay, well thank you very much. Sure. And and I and guess we, you need to give your spiel about uh
0: how to reach you yes well we oh yeah well that that part is recorded so i don't have to give a fresh spiel but (laughs) i do but i do need to um and i always you need to give a spiel with your contact information i know you gave out the email address at the beginning but why don't you give it out again now uh for those okay uh,
1: okay for the show for questions or actually for anything else if you want to uh if you want to just contact me uh it's a s k i m w a t s o n at chessclub.com that's the icc url so so ask im for international master watson at chessclub.com it's a good place to email me if you want to get hold of me and i'll uh try and get back to you as fast as possible if it's a question for the show i use most of them actually oddly enough and uh eventually at least sometimes i wait a few weeks but excellent so uh Please
0: contact me. Excellent. Yeah, I'm sure that some will, and uh, I'll try to um, I'll try to come up with a question for you from one of my many uh, blunders. Oh, I'd
1: love it. I'd love it. In fact, maybe you can come on at some point. Get lucky, you know, uh, on your way home or something. I don't know. Yeah, that that'd <laughs> or, be
0: great. I mean, I'm usually home. Then it's just I would have to, you know, uh, keep uh, you know, you know tie, tie up the kids. Yeah, but
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, that's worth it. Yeah, is I, worth tying up I the I
0: agree. Once <laughs> in a while, you just have to do it. <laughs> All okay. right, John. Well, I once again, I really appreciate it, and um yeah uh thanks for coming on
1: okay thank you
0: thanks to everyone who supports perpetual chess i spend about five hours a week on each episode and even though i love doing it it can be hard to find the time donations from listeners make a huge difference and make perpetual chess a lot more sustainable special shout out to my patreon perpetual partners they are johnny mcmenamin todd bryant greg shahadi jen's green timothy ha tatia varamahan Paul Sweeney, Jennifer Shahadi, Pascal Charbonneau, Zhao Cheng, Kelly Palmer, Matthew Tedesco, Gary Andrews, Krishna Galapakrishnan, Ricky Grahava, Chris Flanagan, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Rob Lazorchek, Jennifer Valens, Tim Seymour, and Chris Wayne Scott. Thanks a lot, everyone. I'll catch you guys next week with another episode. Sports Social Podcast Network.